And to begin, I want us to consider, I want you to consider this question. Have you ever felt like you just didn't fit in? No matter what you did, no matter what you tried to change, you, you were just kind of like a misfit. Uh, you may remember the movie Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, one of the early claymation, it's kind of claymation, right, a cartoon. Well, there are these toys who are misfits. They don't fit in anywhere. They have something a little different about them, and so they all huddle together on this secluded island, and they have solidarity with one another because they don't fit anywhere else. Well, I kind of got a sense of that as uh, Steve Perdue shared with us last week. Can you imagine what it would be like uh, for him and his family? Uh, you, you, you're trying to learn the language and you've learned a bit of it. Uh, and yet there's still a very real sense where you just don't feel like you fit in. You're a misfit there. Uh, it's a different culture. There are different ways of doing things. There are people that you, you want to get close to, but for some reason you just can't get close to them. And maybe you felt this in, in other ways, maybe not something not so extreme, but you felt for some reason or another like you didn't fit, like you just wanted to get home. Maybe you were overseas on a trip and you, you were just dying to get home. There's this picture of me when I went to Cross Point at Campbell University for a summer camp for one week. I was just a little boy and I had a big smile on my face and my face was red because I had been crying because I was homesick. I just wanted to go home. I just felt out of place. And sometimes we might feel like that in different uh, situations. You know, there, there is a sense in which, we, uh, in which it is right for us to feel at home in the world. And so we come back from, you know, being overseas and it feels right to be at home, to be with our family, to be in America, in our culture, what we're used to. Um, in a sense, it's right to feel that because this world is God's world. He has created it, and it is to His glory. It is a good world filled with, with wonderful things that God has created for us. But there's probably a greater sense in which we ought to feel out of place all the time. Because ultimately, this world is broken. While there are remnants of its original goodness, the goodness with which God created it, we have ruined this world, and now it is subject to decay, and now it is not our home. We were made for another place. We were made to be with God in a perfect relationship for all eternity. So we as Christians are now the called out ones. Right? We are the ones who have been set apart from the world we are different from the world we are a peculiar people so there's a a real sense in which we should never feel like we fit in this world we should not feel at home here in this world well remember the main theme or what i've argued is one of the big themes of the book of first corinthians living as god's church in an ungodly culture that's where we are right now in america In this year, 2017, we are a part of God's church in an ungodly culture. And it's very similar in a lot of ways to what the Corinthians were dealing with. Very similar. You you should read the whole book. We've we've gone through this, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, step by step, kind of paragraph by paragraph. But you know, it would have been read publicly in one sitting to the churches as it was passed around. So maybe you ought to do this later today or later this week, just sit down and read through 1 Corinthians to get a sense of this, that we are God's church living in an ungodly culture. 
And maybe then we'll, we'll remember this fact that this is not our home. We were not made for, for this. And so Paul is tying up some loose ends here in chapter 16. Things that are important, things that go right along with the rest of the book, but he didn't have a chance really to get to in greater detail in his letter. So you might kind of feel like this is, this is just a hodgepodge of different instructions that he's giving the Corinthians. But it is tied together with, with the rest of the book, and there is, I think, a unifying bond in all of these commands, and the bond is love. That everything that you do be done out of love. And this is what separates us from everyone else in the culture. This is what signifies us as God's people, that we have love for one another. Let's look at this last chapter together. I'll read through it. Now concerning the collection for the saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Dear Father, we ask now as we come to the reading and preaching of your word that you would move among us. We pray that you would use these these words of Paul in the closing of this letter to to change us in some way, to build us up, to strengthen us, to convict us, to mend us in ways where we are sinful and have disobeyed you. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit so that we would produce the fruit of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ and for our Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So although these may look like a hodgepodge of instructions, I want to draw from these instructions five 
loving reminders for Christians who are living in an ungodly culture. Five loving reminders from Paul to the Corinthians so that they might live as those who are in the world but not of the world. Christians living in an ungodly culture. The first we see in verses 1 through 4 is give generously. Give generously. So he talks about this collection. Now concerning the collection for the saints. This uh, is a particular sort of thing, not, not merely a, a random collection for other believers. But it, Paul talks about this collection in other parts of the New Testament. And he's speaking specifically of the collection for the Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ who are in Jerusalem. So these are Jewish Christians who are in Jerusalem and they are suffering different sorts of persecution. They are suffering, suffering from extreme poverty. Some think it may have been a part of how they lived together in the, in the community. They, sh- they sold things and had everything in common. And then that with the, the combination of that plus the persecution caused them to, to lose just about everything. And so Paul is going around to these Gentile uh, churches and collecting money from them in order to invest it in these brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. So notice what kind of giving Paul encourages. First, he encourages regular giving. On the first day of week, you're to set, first day of the week, you're to set something aside. We don't know if this was held in their own homes or if it was gathered together at the church and they kept it at the church stores. But it was, it was to be a regular sort of reminder, a regular saving, setting aside for the giving of the work of the Lord. In particular, this giving of the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. Notice also it's to be proportional. In proportion to how God has prospered you. And so one week might look different than the other. One month might look different from another. As the Lord prospers you, He doesn't set down a specific amount or percentage. He, he simply gives this proportional aspect. As the Lord blesses you, then you are to weigh it in your own mind. You are to think about this, and then you are to decide what would be good to give. That would be a good, good practice for us as well. I mean, we don't need to simply uh, say, well, here's my, the amount that I give to the church and then just give that all the time. We ought to re- be reevaluating this. We ought to be considering how has the Lord prospered us? How has the Lord blessed us? Maybe not just with my, my money, but also with my time, with my energy, with where I am in this particular place in, in life. And how can I in turn bless others, bless the poor, bless those who are needy with these things? Also notice that it is given in the stewardship of trustworthy people. Paul says, uh, do this, set this aside so that when I come, it will be ready uh, to be collected. And then when I arrive, I will send those whom you have accredited by letter. So the idea is this church is going to set aside particular people who are trustworthy to handle money. And then we're going to send them with the gift. And so our giving should be given in the stewardship of trustworthy people. So consider some applications here for us in these, these principles that Paul gives in giving. First, I mean, we could rifle down just several implications and applications. Saving in order to be prepared to give, and maybe I'm not talking primarily of giving to the church, that's your regular giving, but being able to save in order that when a need comes up, you're able to meet it. 
When a need in the church body comes up, when a need in your community comes up, you have this money that you have set aside for that specific purpose. And you can meet that need. You won't be scrambling to try to figure out how you can meet that need. We are to give according to our own own means, more at times, less at other times. We are uh, to entrust our giving to trustworthy people. So that applies to the church as well as to other ways that you give. You ought to trust those that you give your money to, to use it well. But really, I think that there is uh, an even bigger issue in this collection of these gifts for the saints in Jerusalem. Giving, really, our giving to those in need, our giving to the poor should be an expression of our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is what this was from the Gentile Christians to the Jerusalem Christians. It, It was an expression of solidarity and love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. So this bigger issue is is what we could call solidarity or a mutual support within the brotherhood and sisterhood of Christ. In other words, this was the Gentile church saying to the Jerusalem church, we are with you, brothers and sisters. You are not alone in this. Although we should be completely separated from one another, Jew and Gentile, we are completely different from one another. We have different ethnicities. We have different kind of cultural values. We are with you. You are our brothers and sisters in Christ in a much greater way than we are with other Gentiles. We are one in Christ. So we need to stick together and support one another. You know, it is so easy to build kind of a mutual support with those who are just like us. Isn't it? It's just natural. We just find it easy. And so we maybe tend to gravitate toward those in our own neighborhoods or in our churches or in other situations. We gravitate toward those who are most like us. And this is easy and this is natural. You heard, no doubt, about the situation in Charlottesville yesterday. And, and what is that? What was that group who was gathered together? It was a group uh, mainly of, of white men who found solidarity in a common heritage, in a common culture, in a common skin color, and they prized that. So it was easy for them to find naturally this, this, this commonality among them. And this is, we all have the desire to find this solidarity and mutual support for one another. The basis of their unity together was what? Skin color? Uh, common heritage, perhaps them as a people feeling oppressed like they, they need to get what they deserve. And we see what it produces as well. It produces pride. It produces anger. It produces violence and hatred. Well, if it's true that that sort of group or even other groups are able to find their common bond in commonalities, how much more ought we to find solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus? Our our commonality is not based upon our own culture. It's not based upon our own, the hobbies that we enjoy together. It's not based upon our skin color. As Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, the basis of our solidarity is Christ our Lord, that we have been saved by grace and grace alone. And do you know what the result of that? Do you know what pro- that produces? Not hatred, but love. 
And not only love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, but everyone who has been made in the image of God Almighty. And that's everyone. Our solidarity with one another springs forth from our common salvation in Christ and produces humility and peace and love for all people. And so in the midst of this kind of cultural upheaval in America right now, we need to stand as lights combating the darkness, showing the alternative. No, we are not, we are not uniting together with others because of our, our common heritage, but because of Christ. And like with the Gentiles and with the Jews, this resulted in them giving liberally in order to show their common heritage in Christ, their common solidarity, their mutual support for one another. The truth is God is not separating the nations, but he is gathering the nations in Christ. So kind of an implication of this solidarity between the Gentiles and the Jews, this has big implications for we who are Christians in an ungodly culture. So we need to bind together as our brothers and sisters are are persecuted, as we face difficulties or or challenges, uh, having the freedom to express our faith or to believe how we want to believe. More and more than ever, we are going to need to be bound together with other Christians, supporting other Christians, building them up, giving of our time, giving of our money. Uh, Rod Dreher in his, his book, The Benedict, Options suggests it will mean something like intentionally patronizing Christian businesses, that we would be investing in other believers in Christ, this solidarity with one another, this mutual support for one another. So, our first loving reminder is give generously. But notice there's something underneath just this giving it is a, a mutuality between brothers and sisters in Christ. Second, in the midst of this ungodly culture, we're going to need to look out for gospel opportunities. Intentionally watching, looking, seeking out gospel opportunities. Look at verses 5 through 9. Notice in these verses, Paul is very flexible with his plans. He has a plan. He knows what he intends to do, but he's flexible in changing his plans. Why? Because he doesn't know what the will of God is in all this. He knows what his plans are. He knows what he thinks would be wise in his own mind. But he also knows that God might railroad his plans and totally change his direction. And so look at some of the terms he uses. I intend to do this. Perhaps I will do this. I hope to do this. If the Lord permits, then I will do this. Well, what's the the consistent uh, pattern underneath all of this flexibility in his plans? What remains consistent is, no matter what his plans are, is this. He's using wisdom, and then he is ready to search out and to seek opportunities for the gospel. And so this this changes his plans. He had intended to do something, but an open door of the gospel has been laid here. And so I need to take advantage of this open door of the gospel. And notice, along with the open door of the gospel, what else comes? often comes adversaries or persecution. Almost in line with what Gary was talking about, those who are most persecuted and resistant to the gospel, 
Uh, they're also bearing much fruit as we are able to, to send missionaries to them. What remains consistent in Paul, no matter what happens to his plans, is that he is eager to identify and to pursue gospel opportunities. So what are some applications here? Well, one just has to do with decision-making in the will of God. We do not know the precise kind of will of God for our future, right? That is hidden. So going to this school or that school, we need to base this on wisdom, not on finding some sign from God in order to know what we ought to do. Taking this job or that job, which seem equally, uh, equally good, equally perhaps glorifying to God, we use the wisdom that God has given us, and we make the best decision we can. We don't need to look for a, a specific sign out of heaven and say, do this or do that. Now, we do know what God's will is in another sense, is that we would be holy for His glory. In, in whatever circumstance we find ourselves, that we would pursue holiness, that we would pursue Christ's likeness, that we would love one another. So we are to use uh, wisdom in making decisions like Paul, and we are to be flexible in those decisions, in those plans that we make. And underneath it all, we need to have this desire to seek out and identify gospel opportunities. And often with that, knowing that adversaries of the gospel will come as well. So in an increasingly hostile culture, which I think we're living in, there will be a temptation for you to keep quiet about Christ, to not speak his name. You probably already sense the temptation in you want to be wise about how you share the gospel with unbelievers. You want to be wise in how you approach it. But often... What ends up happening is we never end up crossing that line. We're content to become friends with someone without ever trying, aiming for sharing the truth of Jesus Christ who has saved sinners. The temptation even now is to just go about our business, passing up opportunities, open doors for the gospel, just passing them by, forgetting about them, and feeling no guilt or sorrow about it. The problem is we can't be content just to hold this good news in our own hearts and enjoy it for ourselves. How selfish would it be for us not to tell others the good news of Christ? So even this this week I encountered uh, someone who was a self-proclaimed atheist. And I wanted to say, give me a break. There's no such thing as an atheist. You you tell me you're an atheist when you're in trouble, when you're in deep, deep trouble. Tell me you aren't praying to someone. Uh, but I didn't say that. I, I kind of held back. But it reminded me when, when I encountered him, after the encounter, I was reminded of Penn Gillette from the, the comedy duo Penn and Teller and what he has said at one point in time. He's a, an avowed atheist. Um, he, he believes nothing of the gospel. He believes in no God whatsoever. And yet, when it comes to Christians sharing their faith, he said, I totally respect that. I think it's right for Christians to share their faith. He said, how selfish would you have to be? How much would you have to hate someone to think that they are going to hell and you not give them the answer to what they need? And that is absolutely true, right? So we, recognizing our love for not only the brothers and sisters in Christ, but for all people who have been made in the image of God, who are destined for hell without the gospel, 
We can't be content to hold it to ourselves. We've got, it doesn't mean we'll just blurt it out in an offensive sort of fashion, but it means we will be strategizing in our minds, I love this person. We're not you know, notching notches on our belt. I love this person. I want to care for them physically and emotionally. I want to be there for them as a neighbor. But I also desperately want them to know the gospel. There should be a passion about this. I want them to know Jesus Christ who will forgive them of their sins and give them life. I don't want them to suffer in hell for all eternity. I want them to enjoy every blessing in the spiritual, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because of Jesus Christ. So we ought to be looking for gospel opportunities, open doors for the gospel, and then seizing upon them in love for others. The third loving reminder Paul gives to the Corinthians is to recognize godly leaders. To recognize godly leaders. In verses, uh, this is in verses 10 through 12 and then also in 15 through 18. So about Timothy, he tells the Corinthians, put him at ease. So you can imagine young Timothy, a little restless, a little nervous, not knowing how to approach uh, this particular church. But it, Paul tells the Corinthians, let no one despise him. Help him on his way. And the reason is not because he in an in and of himself is worthy of it, it's because Paul says he's doing the same work that I'm doing. He's invested in the gospel. He's looking out for your good. He's trying to serve you in the gospel. This would have been even earlier on than when Paul writes to Timothy and says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set an example for the believers. So he's encouraging the Corinthians to recognize Timothy as a leader and to follow him. The house of Stephanus, perhaps they were some of the first converts in the area, so they would have been more seasoned. They would have had longer patterns of of faithfulness to Christ and service to his church. So Paul says to be subject to these and those who are like them. And then the three others that he mentions as well. Um, Give recognition to servants who go above and beyond in their service. So applications for us here. One is to follow your leaders. And it's not primarily to do with my um, worthiness or my skills in leadership or Jason's, but it has to do with the, the role God has given us and the office God has given us in serving the church and in seeking your spiritual good. We care about you. We want to pursue your spiritual good. We want to pray for you regularly. We want to, to counsel with you. We want to uh, walk with you in your life. And really, this, there's a sense in which all of us are doing this together. right? We're serving one another in this. We are keeping watch over one another's souls. Because we know if we're left to ourselves, we will wander. We will stray. Also recognize exemplary servants. Those who, who go above and beyond the call of duty in serving God's church. Recognize them, Paul says. Now, we don't want to give unnecessary platform to anyone. We don't want to put anyone up on a pedestal and begin worshiping them as though they were something in and of themselves. But Paul says, those who are worthy of recognizing, hold them up. Show their faithfulness, not, not uh, for prideful reasons, but in order to give thanks to God for 
how he has blessed his church. I think immediately of Jason, how he works a full-time job and then gives himself really full-time in the work of eldering this church. He has been a faithful servant. And so we should recognize that and give thanks to God for how he has blessed us in him. And several others of you as well I could mention. We, I've seen you go in above and beyond the call of duty to serve God's church, and we are thankful for you. Also, I would say an application here is to imitate their examples. Those that are recognized for their hard work and service, imitate their examples. Refresh the saints by your work, by your hard work. Think about Steve Perdue again and how difficult their their ministry is in China and, and how many frustrations they face and how many difficulties and obstacles they face. Men like him and his family, they are in need of saints who will come alongside them and refresh their souls. Ministry is a difficult work. And so I especially have a heart for guys like Steve and his wife and his family. What can you do to refresh someone's soul who may be in a season of difficulty or facing obstacles? How can you be one who comes alongside and refreshes them for the sake of the gospel? In other words, an implication of this is you have responsibility for the perseverance of the faith of your brothers and sisters. You have a real responsibility. Look around the room. You have a responsibility to these brothers and sisters and for their persevering in the faith. Individualism says, I'm just responsible for me. I just got to make sure I stay on the, the narrow and straight path. But being a servant of Christ means I have a responsibility, a real responsibility to my brothers and sisters to refresh them, to strengthen them, to build them up in the faith. Have you recognized that responsibility that you have towards others in this room and some others who are missing from our midst today? That is a real responsibility that we've taken uh, vows really in, in a covenant together that we would watch over one another. That we would seek the spiritual good of one another. Let me give you the fourth loving reminder that Paul gives to these Corinthians. It's in verse 13. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. So he says, he gives them several instructions here. Be watchful. We might think that he's speaking of watching your life and your doctrine. How he tells uh, Timothy, keep a close watch on your life, on your your sanctification, your holiness, and on your doctrine to make sure you are believing what has been handed down to you, what is biblical. And I do think that's a part of it, but I I think related to that is uh, having in mind the return of Jesus Christ. Be watchful because Christ is coming soon. It's often used in this way in the New Testament to be watchful. One day Jesus will break through the clouds and it will be the most glorious experience you have ever had as Jesus comes and gathers his people from all nations. Be ready for that. Be eager for that. Notice what Paul says there at the end. In verse 22, O Lord, come. That must be the heartbeat of every Christian. right? This is why we can't feel at home in the world. Because this is not our home. Our hearts ought to be yearning. Lord Jesus, please come soon. We see the events of yesterday. 
We see the turmoil in, in our nation and in our world, and our hearts should cry out, Lord Jesus, come back, please. Yeah, I have plenty of things ahead of me. And I want to see my grandchildren grow up. I want to see this and that. I want to be a part of that. But none of that is anything compared to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you long for Jesus to come back? Right? This life is going to be short. Don't waste it pursuing things that will vanish, that will be gone tomorrow. Pursue Christ. Yearn for His return. And let that yearning for His return cause you to stand fast in the midst of this ungodly culture. Stand fast. Stand firm in the faith, Paul says. There will be temptations to fall. Act like men. Now here I think he's speaking of acting like adults, putting aside the childish things and being strong. Acting like an adult who has responsibility and can stand firm. So women, I don't want you you know, acting like men. I don't want you lowering your, your voices and, and walking a little... Uh, with a little macho step or anything. Be strong, though. Be like adults in the faith. Don't be like a wave of the sea tossed here and there. Don't be like a leaf that's scattered by the wind. Remain firm in the faith, even if we begin to face real persecution. Be strong. Do what it takes to build up the foundations of your faith. So that, in a real sense, means preparing yourself if, for if and when you do face persecutions. It's not going to be enough to simply coast through your Christianity. You need to know what you believe and why you believe it. So when we were in Haiti, I saw these palm trees. Maybe you've seen them as hurricanes come by in the news. These palm trees seem to be indestructible. Now, it's, they're not. Sometimes they do fall down and they, they crack and things like that. But they seem to be able to tolerate such strong winds from hurricanes. And there was a storm that blew through while we were there. And it was amazing how it hardly seemed to affect them at all. Well, palm trees first have roots, of course, like many trees spread out. They have smaller roots that are spread out all over the ground. And they're, so they're basically acting like an anchor, just holding on tight all around them. But then also the trunk is made up of kind of cylindrical pieces that come together to form this whole trunk. So kind of imagine like wires bundled together and how strong they are, how thick, and how they kind of bend but don't break. That's kind of how a palm tree is. And then maybe you've noticed the leaves of a palm tree as well. They don't, they don't catch all the wind like a sail when it comes through. They just let the wind pass right through, and they're able to withstand the storm. Well, in a similar way, we must root ourselves in the faith which has been handed down to us. We must anchor ourselves in the Word of God and this faith that has been given to us. We need to be bundled together as one, strengthening one another. We can't survive on our own. We can't stand firm on our own, so we need one another. And then perhaps we could imagine the leaves in the sense, the analogy of we need to let the pleasures of this world pass us on by. Just let them pass by, not, not taking them on, not receiving them, not taking on the pleasures and desires of this world. What does Jesus say about those seeds that sprung up among the weeds? The cares and concerns, the pleasures of this world choked it out and it died. It wasn't a genuine faith firmly planted in God's word. So if you're lacking in some way, 
Uh, don't be dishonest about that. If you're struggling in the faith in some way, you're struggling to believe some foundational doctrine of Christianity. Be open and honest about that. It doesn't help to just hide it because then it's just going to fester and grow. But we want to walk together as brothers and sisters, encouraging one another, strengthening one another. If you are struggling in some area of your life in sin, stop hiding it. Don't hide that. It's going to kill you. We are responsible for one another. So be honest with your pastors, with your brothers and sisters in Christ, because you cannot do it alone. We must be firm in the faith. We must stand strong in the faith and prepare for any troubles that are coming our way. His last instruction here is let all you do be done in love. And that's going to be our final full point. We're going to turn that into a separate point. Let all that you do be done in love. I think love ties really this chapter together. And love is woven throughout the entire book, especially as we saw chapters 8 and following. Love. Love is the key to so much of what we're aiming for. It's a huge emphasis in this book. It's a huge emphasis on how to live as God's church in the midst of an ungodly culture. Verse 22, love for the Lord. And then really we could consider all of these greetings at the end uh, to be aspects of love for God's church. These, These commands to greet one another with a holy kiss. Paul's tender blessing in verse 25, look at that. Look how tender and genuine this appears. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. In verse 22, he says, if anyone does not have love for the Lord, he is accursed. In other words, condemned by God. We saw in chapter 13 how gifts, sacrifice, our labor means absolutely nothing if we do it without love. It's worthless. It's vain. So love for the Lord must be our prime motive in all that we do. It must propel us into acts of service. It's not mainly expressed by feeling or emotion, although that is a part of it. We should have feeling behind our love. There should be emotion in our love. There should be genuine affections. And yet, our love will ultimately be expressed by trust and obedience. By trusting in the Lord and what He has said for us and by uh, obeying His commands. By doing what He says. This is what it means to love the Lord, the Master, the One who is above all, the God of all the universe. We must love the Lord. And then Paul tells the church to greet one another and we see His tender blessing. So we must also have a genuine love for the church. For God's people. We can't love the Lord and not love His church. So this is why we've made our mission statement. uh, To love God's glory in all that we do. To love God's people, His church, and to love God's world. Now I hope you recognize the problem with this call to love. Some people think uh, this, this is simple. Christianity is the simplest religion ever. Simply love God and love others. You see the problem with that is that is 
the most difficult thing in all the world, to love God with all of our hearts and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In fact, it's impossible for us to truly do it. How many times this week have you failed to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? How many times this week have you failed to love your neighbor as yourself? You can't count how many times you have done that. We can't do it, which points ultimately to our unbelief at times and to our disobedience. And that's why we are so thankful that Paul says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The one who loved the Father perfectly gave himself generously on the cross. He did everything in love and he became a curse for us. You notice that? Paul says, whoever does not have love for the Lord is a curse. But Jesus perfectly loved the Father and yet he was still accursed when he shouldn't have been. He should have been received into the Father's arm with a celebration, and yet he died on the cross like a common criminal, humiliated in public as he received the wrath of God upon his own shoulders. He became a curse for us, and he extends now to you his grace, undeserved favor. His grace, which was given to us because of His love for us. Nothing melts a hard and sinful heart like the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It is what every one of us needs time and time again is to remember this gospel of grace through Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. You remember the story. This woman who was of a particular reputation, a sinful reputation, comes to Jesus as he's having this meal with other very religious people. And she is weeping and she washes Jesus' feet with her hair. Such an intimate act of kindness and love. And the Pharisees rebuke Jesus and say, don't you know the reputation of this sinful woman? How could you let her do this? And he, Jesus says, she's, she's been treating me like a Lord since the moment I came in. Because she has been forgiven much. She loves much. She's recognized all that she's been forgiven. She's recognized the grace that I have for her. And because of that, she loves me desperately. The same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. So the Pharisees, seeing this, were hardened by it. They didn't recognize the depths of their own sin. They just recognized the depths of this woman's sin and that she shouldn't be forgiven. And so when they see sinners being forgiven, such amazing, extravagant grace... Well, they're hardened towards it. What is your response to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Would would you allow it to melt your heart in love for Jesus Christ? And then don't, don't let it stop there, but then let it move you. Let this love for your Lord who bought you move you to serve others in love, to give of yourself generously, 
to take every opportunity to share the gospel, to find those open doors and to share the gospel with others. Let them move you to to cause you to do everything in love. Let's pray that the Lord would do that in us by His Holy Spirit.